Genesis 13. We're going to read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between bone and marrow. Lord, we, we pray, God, that as your word is read, as we study it, Lord, as we learn from you, God, that you would pierce our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would not just teach us true things about you, God, but that we would encounter you in your word, that we would learn from you, that we would experience your grace, your presence, your love for your people. God, teach us and prepare us not only to learn from your word and to know your word, Lord, but to obey your word, to not be hearers only, but doers. God, I pray that what you accomplish in us, Lord, would not only be for our good individually and corporately, Lord, but would be for your glory. God, all of this is for your glory. All of this, Lord, we ask that you would do it as you desire, that your will would be done. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was never really good at math growing up, but I do remember something from a statistics class. 
And that is standard deviation. For those of you who may have taken statistics, uh, standard, a standard deviation, if you are pointing, uh, plotting points on a graph, the standard deviation is the distance between the points above and below the, the, the mean, the standard. The, the, plots, the, the, the points plotted deviate from the standard, from the average. What we know from statistics, we know is true of the Christian life as well. God has given us his standard of perfect holiness. He's given us a standard of, of righteousness, uh, the desired uh, way, the, the way he wants us to live our lives. But we have the tendency to deviate. We have the tendency to go to the right or to the left and to find ourselves um, you know, whether it's a little bit or a long way off from that standard that God asks of us. And this deviation in discipleship is a normal thing. It really is. It's a common experience for, for all of us. We find ourselves in our faith or in our behavior or our attitude or whatever it is, just a little bit astray from what we know God wants us to be. It's a normal thing. But true discipleship, a, a life that is truly following Jesus, is never okay with the deviation. See, a disciple shares the prayer of the famous hymn, Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. You know the lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it with thy spirit from above. God, I don't want to wander. I don't want to to deviate. Every person who sought to honestly follow Jesus can at some point in their life relate to these words. Sin is not only deviation from, from the truth about God or, or deviation from following God. It, it actually creates deficiencies in our intimacy with God, our experience of God. And so the question today that I want us to ask is not, will we deviate? We will. The question I want us to ask is when we find that we have deviated, how will we respond? How will we respond? See, our text picks up after God had just rescued Abram from such a deviation. If you remember um, faithlessly, Abram chose to seek help from the famine by going into Egypt. He turned to the world and he looked to the world's goods in order to provide for him when God had promised to bless him in the land. And so Abram left and he went to Egypt with Sarai and he went to Egypt with his nephew Lot. But God, in his grace, was faithful to his promise to Abram, and he brought Abram and Sarai and Lot out of Egypt and rescued them by his grace. And so here we see Abram responding to the grace of God by returning to the place where it all started. Okay, it says that Abram returned to that place where he had first pitched his tent to the place where he had first built the altar. He returns to the place where God had first appeared to him. He returned to the place where he first called upon the name of the Lord. He goes back 
to the beginning. He goes back to the place where God met him. He goes back to the place of communion with God, where he knows and remembers that God had met me here in this place. But Lot, when trouble arises once more, Lot immediately takes the opportunity to run back to the world. It says that he goes back to the Jordan Valley, which looked like the Garden of Eden, which looked like Egypt. He goes back to the place that was like Egypt. He goes back to the place where he believed he was safe rather than remaining in God's promises, the promises that God gave to Abram. And so their two responses will have massive implications for the rest of their stories and the rest of their destinies. Those who know the story will, will recall that, you know, Abram's faith will continue to waver. Abram's not a, a, a perfect man by any means. His faith will be challenged. He'll make mistakes. But through his mistakes and through his wavering faith, he will learn the faithfulness of God. And he will eventually put his trust and his hope in God so that Scripture says Abram believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So much faith would Abraham have that when God is talking to Abraham's son, Isaac, he says that it's because of Abraham's faith, even before the law was ever given, God says of Abraham, he obeyed my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Because of faith, Abraham is declared to have a righteousness that we know from Abraham's story he did not have. But it's by faith that Abraham is declared righteous. But Lot, though he was with Abram when Abram had received the call, though he's a member of Abram's family and therefore could have been a beneficiary of the promise given to Abram because God promised Abram he would make him a great nation, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Though Lot could have claimed a, a, an access to this blessing, he continues to deviate further and further from the promise. And he goes back into the world. Now, something we need to address before we we get too far into this is that many scholars will debate on whether or not it was right for Abram and Lot to separate. Okay, they see this separation as giving in to the relational uh, uh, tension and just deciding to part ways. They say Abram should have been able to resolve the tension, that Abram should have been able to keep unity between Lot and himself. And so still others will say that Lot never should have been with Abram. Remember, God told Abram to leave your land, leave your father's house, and leave your kindred. Lot is a nephew of Abram. In fact, Abram, when he comes to Lot, he says, let there be no strife between us, for we are kindred. Well, wasn't Abram supposed to leave everything? He was supposed to leave his kindred. And so other scholars will say, no, it was absolutely right that they should separate. In fact, they should have separated at the very beginning. And so, yes, this separation may be a result of a mistake that Abram made, but it's remedying that mistake that he made in the past because Lot never should have been with Abram. Now, whether or not this separation should have happened or should not have happened, Scripture actually offers no judgment. 
doesn't tell us whether or not this was right or wrong because it's not the point of the text. See, the main point of this text is not the separation between Abram and Lot. It is how they separated and where they went. And the point is comparing the character between Abram and Lot in the story. See, Abram demonstrates an incredible character in that he, with his wisdom, presents a way forward so that the relationship between Abram and Lot can actually be maintained. It's because they don't want strife to enter their ranks that they choose this separation. And we'll see through the rest of the story of Abraham and Lot that they continue to have a very close and, and, and uh, a very important relationship with one another. And so Abram's wisdom here provides this separation as an opportunity to maintain the unity. Also, um, Abram demonstrates an incredible humility and generosity in letting Lot take the first choice of lands. Lot, on the other hand, is the younger of the two, the nephew. Lot, Lot's household is not as wealthy. Lot's, Lot is not the one that the, that the promise came to. And so most scholars agree that Lot's Lot should have deferred to Abram and said, no, 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 Abram. God's promise has come to you. You are my uncle. You choose the land that is most suited for you. Lot should have deferred to Abram, but instead Lot takes the first chance he gets in order to run to what looked like the best land. It said, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw literally that the grass is greener on the other side of God's promise. He looked up, he sees the lands. This one is greener. I know God's promised this one, that this is the land of blessing, but I'm going to choose this one because it looks better from what I can see. And so he runs to the land that he thinks will provide for him better. And as a result of his decision, he is going to live from here on out in a perpetual cycle of deviation in the book of Genesis. See, Lot will leave and he goes into the Jordan Valley. He goes into the cities of the Jordan Valley. It says that he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. And then we're given this, this little disclaimer that the men of Sodom are wicked, great sinners before the Lord. And so Lot went and pitched his tent right outside of Sodom. And this, this decision to go into that land ends up resulting in some foreign kings in that area coming in and taking the people of those cities captive. And they actually take Lot captive and they take his family captive so that Abram hears about it, raises a small army and goes and wars against those kings and delivers Lot from his is captivity. And then we see Lot going right back to Sodom, this time not on the outskirts of Sodom, but making his home at the very center of Sodom. He goes deeper into this wicked city. And so when God decides that he is going to judge Sodom for their sin and destroy Sodom, Abram goes to Lot's rescue again, this time not in physical warfare, but in spiritual warfare. Abram intercedes. He prays. And says, God, if there's, if there's righteous people in this city, will you destroy it? 
And so God removes the righteous people from the city. He removes Lot and his family. The angels, they go in there and they tell him, get out, get out of this place, leave the land. And, and Lot goes, well, what if I just go to this place? I don't want to go, I don't want to go really far away. This, this little city, it's just a little city. It's just a small city. Let me go to this city. And God doesn't impose his will on anyone and lets him flee to that city. And so there's this constant, this cycle of deviation in Lot's life. I will go this far and no further. Or I know you're calling me here, but I'm going there. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for your grace. But now I'm going to go do everything that I've been planning on doing all along. Every time God intervenes on Lot's behalf, Lot responds to the grace of God by deviating further and further from the promise. And ultimately, Lot's story ends tragically with him drunk in a cave, unintentionally fathering two children who will eventually become two of the greatest enemies to God's people and God's promises, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Because he continues to deviate. He continues to move further and further away. And so Lot is an example of all of those who know the grace of God in Jesus. And yet continue to live however they please. We see this kind of deviation in our life whenever we do something that we know is wrong. And yet we know God will forgive us. And so we do it anyway. We know that God will forgive us, and so we do it anyway. And this mentality kept me personally in bondage to sin and addiction for years as a young man. God, I know, I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I also know you'll forgive me. So I'm going to do it anyway. What kind of relationship would this behavior be allowed to fly in, right? Like, honey, I know you really hate when I'm, you know, sleeping around. But you also promised to love me. Love means forgiveness. And so I'm going to do it anyway. That's not going to fly. Or kids, I know you don't like when I drink. I don't want to get all belligerent, but you're my kids and you'll get over it. There's no other relationship where that would even logically ever fly. And yet we go, God, I know you hate this thing. You hate sin. Your word says you hate sin. But I know you'll forgive me. And so I'm going to do it anyway. It's the same experience that Lot has time and time again. He's rescued time and time again, and he runs right back into the same situations, and it grows worse and worse and worse. And so this is Lot's response to grace. He runs right back into the thing that he's been saved from. And so scripture says that this is like a dog returning to its vomit. It's gross. That's nasty. This is what we do when we go back into the sin that God has saved us from. It's an acceptance of grace, but not allowing that grace to transform us. Now hear this. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God so that no man should boast. But salvation changes us. And so we need to be aware and be wary if we claim salvation and live a life that is not transformed. God wants to transform our lives. He doesn't just want to save us from the consequences, the penalty of our sin. He wants to save us from the power of our sin, 
to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness, to walk in newness of life. Now, Lot is not all that bad, okay? I, I don't know how this is possible, but the Apostle Peter in the New Testament says that Lot is righteous. Because he did not give in to the sin in Sodom, he is called righteous. Now, all I see is deviation in Lot's story, but I'm going to trust the Apostle Peter and the Word of God and say that there is a righteousness that Lot retains, but he's certainly a picture of compromise. Right? How far can I go? God, am I still in your will here? Can I still be a Christian and be right here? How about now? He's like a toddler. Don't touch that. Don't, 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 don't touch it. You know, just trying to get as close as he can, just trying to push the line, trying to see how far he can go and still be okay with God. We do this too. We try to see how far is too far. But the opposite deviation is true in the Christian life as well. When we experience God's grace that sets us free from sin, and then we actually believe that we can, by changing our own behavior, we can actually earn our way into God's rewards. That, yes, God, you've saved me by grace, but now I got it. No, no, no. I don't need you. I got it. I got this. I can take it from here. I can do this. I remember starting out in ministry um, just such and selfishly ambitious self-righteous young pastor. And I thought I was going to change the world. Honestly, I was just like, I got this education from Biola. Sorry, Westmont. And, uh, and, and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm new in ministry. And so I got all this knowledge and I got all this stuff and I'm going to like, I'm going to set out to, to change the world. God, you've saved me. You've brought me here. I got this. And I remember one day reading John chapter 5 in verse uh, 39 and 40. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, You search the scriptures, scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it's they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that I may give you life. And I realized in that moment in my little studio apartment, I felt God just say, Hey, Adam, um, knowing about me is not the same thing as knowing me. Your knowledge doesn't matter. What you, what you know about, you can know a lot about someone that you've never met. I want you to know me. I want you to spend time with me. You know, I, I know that you, you want to be a preacher of the gospel, but before, I, you need to make sure that you believe the gospel and you obey the gospel because preaching the gospel ain't the same as as believe in the gospel. And I know that you love apologetics and you love to defend the Christian faith against atheism and agnosticism and all these other faiths, but just, just be, be warned, defending the faith is not the same thing as having faith. You know, preaching is not pastoring. And I remember just sitting there going, oh my gosh, how much time have I given to all of these things that I can know and all of these things that I can do. And I've not been resting in all that God has done to make himself known to me, not just in pages, not just in, in words, but, but by his presence involved in my life. I had received the grace of God and yet I was trying to still earn my place 
with God. And so this is the same reason that the Apostle Paul exhorts the Galatian church, have you begun in the spirit only to be perfected in the flesh? Reality Carp, we have begun by the spirit of God, by the mercies of the Lord, him pouring out his spirit on this city and on this community and on our congregation, and we will not be perfected in the flesh. We will not move forward according to our skill, according to our wisdom, but by the Spirit of God. And these deviations are true, not just in the Christian life, but maybe you're here and you're not a believer. These deviations exist in your life as well. You know what it's like to deviate from your own conscience. You know what it's like to have a moral standard and not meet it. There's an old illustration, I believe it was Francis Schaeffer who said this. Imagine when you were born, a a tape recorder was hung around your neck. And every time you made a moral judgment and said, you ought or you ought not to have done this or you should do this or you should not do that or people should be this way or people ought to live this way. Every time you made a moral judgment, the record button was hit on that tape recorder. And when you died and you stood before God, if God were to judge you by your own law, as recorded on that device, if God just pressed play and every moral judgment you ever made was played back in front of you, would you have done all the things you said that others ought to have done? Would you have not done all of the other things that, that, that you yourself said should not have been done? We don't even match our own moral standards. How can we meet the standard of God's perfect righteousness and perfect holiness? We will either presume on God's grace. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, you can say, well, if God exists, he'll know that I've done the best that I can. And so uh, I will presume upon his grace because God is love and love would never condemn anything. And so I'll, 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 take, I'll take my chances. You'll either presume upon God's grace despite your rejection of Jesus through whom God's grace comes Or you will reject the spiritual moral implications of your behavior, which you cannot do because your conscience already bears you witness it's wrong. Whether you're a believer or not, you know what it's like to deviate from what you know is true. And your response will either look like Lot or like Abram. You can continue to turn to the pleasures of the world and find yourself moving further and further away from the truth. Or you can turn to God in Christ and find grace to cover your sin and power to live in a righteousness far beyond your own ability. This is the good news of grace. Our sin is not only forgiven, but we are empowered with a new righteousness. See, Lot turns to the world again, but Abram remembers where the Lord first appeared to him. He remembers where God first called him, where God first appeared to him and promised to give him the land. And so he returns to that place. He returns to Shechem. He returns to that place between Ai and Bethel, where he had built the altar, where God appeared to him, where he knew God met him. He returns to that place. He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to what he knows to be true. Now, I, he, he, he remembers. He returns to that place. He receives a reiterated promise of God. God elaborates on his promise. He says, if someone can count the dust of the earth, then they'll be able to count your offspring. 
and I'm going to give all of this land to you and to them forever. He goes back to that place. He receives a reiteration of God's promise and he responds in worship. Now, if you have a pen somewhere in your handout or whatever, wherever you can write it, write these down. Remember, return, receive, and respond. Abram remembers, he returns, he receives, and he responds. Remember, return, receive, respond. Remember, return, receive, respond. This is a picture of repentance. This is what repentance is. We've talked about this before. We don't like that word. It's scary. But it's beautiful. Repentance is remembering what God has done. Returning to the Lord, receiving grace for your sin and responding in worship. Abram remembers the place where God met with him. He returns to the place where God met with him. He receives a reiteration of the blessing of the promise and he responds in worship. He calls upon the name of the Lord. See, repentance is not just turning from sinful behavior. It's returning to God. It's returning to worship. Pastor Mike and I were talking about this this week, and he reminded me, we worship our way into sin. Okay, we, we, we worship something other than God and that, that leads us into sin, whether it's ourself or pleasure or security or finances or whatever it is. We worship our way into sin. We must worship our way out of it. We must return to God in worship. This is repentance. And so Abram goes back to the place where it all started. I want to ask you, where did it start for you? Where did the Christian life start for you? Where did faith begin for you? How did God make himself known to you at the first? This last Wednesday, it was September 20th. It was the 21st anniversary of the day I met Jesus. My Christian life, I can now take, uh, I can now use wine as communion instead of grape juice. I'm now 21 years old in the faith. And I've been thinking a lot about the last 21 years in in light of this text and in light of just the season in my life and thinking back, what was it like when God first met me? I was 19 years old and I hated the way that I was living. I hated myself and I hated people for the way they made me feel about the way that I was living. I didn't need help feeling guilty. I didn't need help feeling like a scumbag. But the people in my life, especially the Christians in my life, made me feel worse and worse and worse. There was no grace. It was all just, you're evil because you don't believe in Jesus. And then I would look and I'd be like, but you're doing the same things that I'm doing. And I just, I had this, this, this hatred for myself and, and, and the way that I was living, but I was living the way that I was living because I hated people. I hated people. I hated people. I got picked on a lot as a kid, either for having glasses or freckles or teeth that my orthodontist said could eat an apple through a picket fence. I got made fun of a lot. And so people were just like brutal and I wrote them off. Thank God for braces, by the way. 
I wrote them off. I just, I rejected them. You mean nothing to me unless you have something that I can benefit from. And then I'm going to use you to get that thing. But otherwise stay away. Want nothing to do with you. Hated people. And I remember just feeling terrible. And I remember the Christians in my life making me feel worse. And so I was convinced God has to feel the same way about me. All of his followers tell me they feel this way about me. So God has to feel this way about me also. That if Jesus were ever in my presence, he would scoff, he would mock me, he would turn his back on me. I found a New Testament on cassette tape. And I would listen to it in my car as I would drive to work. And I remember being so confused because I was hearing the same stories over and over and over again, but kind of told a different way. And I thought there was something wrong with the tapes and my, my, my cassette player. I didn't realize yet that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were telling the same stories from different perspectives. And the one thing that stood out to me was this. The people who were angriest with Jesus were the Pharisees, the religious people, the ones who were furious that Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. They were furious with Jesus because he showed kindness to me. Furious with Jesus because he showed kindness to the people who were living like I was living. And I remember thinking, God, I'm so confused because everybody who claims to know you despises me, but I kind of feel like if I asked Jesus to coffee, he would take me up on it. He'd actually show me the time of day. I actually, from listening to the gospels, I was like, you know, I actually think that Jesus likes me. He might hate my sin, but he actually likes me. And wants to not just make me feel bad about my sin so I stop doing it, but to save me from my sin. Ready to forgive me. Not if I got my act together, but forgive me and to help me to walk in that holiness. It changed everything for me. It actually got me to say yes when a friend invited me to a college ministry on Friday nights called Reality in 2002, September 20th. And I heard the gospel that my sin was as bad as I thought it was. Listen, your sin is as bad as you think it is. It's actually worse. But you're more loved than you think you are also. No matter how loved you feel right now, you might know the love of God. It's better than that. God's love for you is better than you imagined. When was the last time you considered your testimony? When was the last time you thought about the story of God meeting you in your sin and delivering you from your sin? What, what would it look like to return to that moment? Like Abram experiences the grace of God and he returns to the place where it all began. What would it look like for you to return to the place where it all began? The moment you looked at the cross and saw your sin hanging on it. The moment you realize because your sin is hanging on the cross, that God looks at you and sees the righteousness of his son. When was the last time you returned to that moment? How do you return to that place? How do you go back to the place where it began between you and God? How do you go back there to remember, to return, 
to receive grace for your sin again, refreshed perspective of grace for your sin. And how do you respond? What does it look like to go back to where it began for you? Revelation 2, verses 2 through 5, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Look, for many of us who've been following Jesus for a long time and really trying to follow Jesus and repenting from sin and and, and searching for truth and, and prioritizing the body of Christ and communing with the saints on Sundays and serving and all of these things, and we've got this laundry list that Jesus can look at and say, I know what you're doing. I see it. I know your faith. I know your patient endurance. I know your works. I know your theology. I know how smart you are. I know that. And he doesn't rebuke them for this. He says, I know that. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Many of us get so caught up in what we're doing for God that we forget to remember that it's about what God has done for us, what he has delivered us from. We remember, we return to that place where we first experience the grace of God and we receive it afresh in a new way and we respond in worship. This is what Abram is doing. He remembered the place where God appeared to him, where he first built the altar, where he first worshiped. The place where where Abram departed from. He returns to that. He goes back to where it started and he worships God there again. He remembers and he returns and then God rewards him with a reiteration of the promise. Genesis 13, 14 through 18 says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. The very same thing that Lot did. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the land that was better than God's promise. But here God tells Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. God had already promised him this, but he's reiterating it because Abram returned to that place and needed to remember God's promise, God's call in his life. God says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He remembers, he returns, he receives a renewal of the promise and he responds in worship. He returns to where it all began. Now, regardless of the circumstances surrounding your testimony, it may look like mine, it may look different than mine, there's, there's something that we all have in common. Whatever our brand of sin and rebellion was before we met Jesus, it might look different, but we all have something in common. Where it all began for all of us is the cross. 
where faith began, where, where life in Christ began for all of us. If you're following Jesus, it began at the cross, regardless of your testimony, the grace of God to cover your sin and give you his righteousness is seen at the cross where Jesus, perfect in righteousness and holiness, who never deviated from God's standard of holiness one bit, took on the penalty for our sin. The word of God says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus was perfect. He had never strayed. He was perfectly holy. And God looked at Jesus on the cross and saw the sin of the world. He made Jesus to become sin on the cross so that he could look at you and see Jesus. So that he could look at you and see the righteousness of his son. And so like Abram, because of faith, God says of you who believe, you have kept my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, he can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Though you know it has not been all well done. Those sins were crucified and you have been set free. We need to regularly return to the cross. This is why Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified, nothing else. We need to return to the cross, to remember where it began, to return to God, to receive grace and then respond to that grace in worship. Abram, he won't stay in Shechem. He won't stay in that place. He packs up his tent and he moves his tent to Hebron and he builds another altar. Abram's life will be characterized by tents and altars. He moves his tent from one place to another and he builds an altar. He moves his tent from one place to another and he builds an altar. He establishes in his life the opportunity to regularly return to the altar, regularly return to worship. And so the incredible thing for us is that we don't need to return to a physical place. You don't need to go back to the place where you first prayed and asked God to save you. You don't need to go back to a physical place. You don't need to go back to a a certain time or recreate anything in your life that was there in the past when it happened. Because God has never turned away from you. In our thoughts, in our deeds, we deviate, we stray, we're we're all over the place, but God has never turned from us. And so we don't need to go anywhere. The Lord is right there with us wherever we are for us to remember, return, to receive his grace and to respond in worship. We don't need to go on a pilgrimage. We don't need to build an altar. Instead, as a church family, we build regular rhythms of returning to God in our lives. This is what uh, many refer to as spiritual disciplines. If we don't like the word repentance, we really don't like the word discipline. But spiritual disciplines are regular rhythms of returning to God's word, to prayer, to confession and repentance, these are opportunities that we can personally and daily build into our lives regular rhythms of returning. But we also have corporate rhythms of returning. 
Sundays is a weekly corporate opportunity for the body of Christ, the family of God, to regularly return to the word, regularly return to worship, regularly return to the cross. And on Sundays, we've got communion available. We're going to celebrate communion here in a moment. The the bread and the cup, this physical reminder of Christ's body broken for you, the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The Lord's Supper, Supper is a regular rhythm of returning where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We return to the cross. We return, we receive God's grace and we respond in worship. And in this way, like Abram, we live in the grace of God, abiding in him more and more every day. Though we experience these deviations over time, those deviations become smaller and smaller and smaller. And this is the hope that we have, that we look forward to in the kingdom, that one day when Christ returns and we stand before God in in, in the kingdom that he uh, brings when the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come and everything is restored, these deviations that we see in our lives will be gone. And we'll experience the answer to that prayer in that hymn. We'll experience our wandering hearts being bound to Christ. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we are looking for. It's interesting in this text, and I'll close with this, that God invites Abram to walk through the land The land doesn't belong to him yet. God has promised it to him, so it's as good as done, but he has not taken possession of it yet. And God invites him to walk through the land, the length and the breadth of the land. God has promised you a kingdom, his kingdom. He has promised to prepare a place for you in his kingdom where his righteousness rules. So the invitation to us today even though we are not experiencing the consummation of that kingdom, the fullness of that kingdom, you're invited to walk in it because it's as good as done. You are invited to walk in the righteous rule of Christ. You are invited to walk in his holiness. You are invited to walk in the length and breadth and depth of God's love for you, knowing that in eternity, it will all be fulfilled in beauty and power and glory. And we will live with God in eternity. And until then, we regularly return to the cross. We regularly return to the place where it all began. We remember, we receive God's grace anew and we respond in worship. That's why we are here today. That's why we continue to gather as a church. And that's why we will continue to gather until the day the Lord returns, regularly returning as the family of God to give him praise. And so let's pray to him now. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that salvation is not just something you've done for us in our past, but it is the thing that you are doing constantly in our lives as you save us not only from the penalty of sin, but you save us from the power of sin. And one day, Lord, you will save us from the presence of sin. And so until that day, God, we walk in faith, believing that it is by faith the righteous will live. 
And so God, we trust you and ask that you would lead us now in our response to you, that we would worship you in this place because you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.